Praise the Lord. Amen. Love that. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Uh, We're going to continue in our study in Acts this morning. If you'd open up to the 11th chapter, Acts chapter 11, we're going to go to the end of the chapter. We're going to start at verse 19. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. This is God's word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicians, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believe turned to the Lord. This, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went off to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Our Lord, we are so thankful to be here this morning to open up your holy word. As Chris says, we, as he said, we pray that you would just change our hearts even through this text, Lord. We know that it has the power to do so. Uh, we pray that you would be glorified in our time together. You alone are worthy of all praise and all glory, and it's a delight to give it to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I'd like to dive right in here and pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Luke concluded his account of the gift of salvation coming to Cornelius and his whole household with Peter's words. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. God granted repentance. God not only uh, granted salvation leading to eternal life, but he granted, allowed, gave holy and capable, totally depraved men and women the ability to repent, to turn from their sins, and to turn to him for that salvation and all through the power of his Holy Spirit who had been poured out on these Gentiles, these non-Jewish men and women of Caesarea. For the last three weeks now, we've spent our time highlighting 
this monumental shift that had taken place in the church in chapters 10 and 11. Events that have had massive implications for every Christ follower, Jew or Gentile, since. And events that would continue this morning as we pick up in verse 19, where Luke says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose uh, over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. This takes us all the way back to chapters 7 and 8. Right as, as the religious Jews of Jerusalem were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So from that day on, that day when the religious Jews in Jerusalem tried to stomp out the flames of the gospel, on that day the embers of the, and the, the fiery ashes of the church rose up and were carried by the winds of the Holy Spirit all throughout Palestine. As the Lord scattered his people, as the Lord sowed the seed of his gospel throughout that entire region, Philip went to Samaria, where the half-breed Jew Gentiles received the word of God and the spirit of God, breaking down the long-standing barriers between the two people groups. He was then taken down to Gaza, where a man from Ethiopia received the word of God, received the spirit of God. Again, breaking down these long-standing barriers. Luke even told us in Acts chapter 9, The church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace. It was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. The word just grew and grew, the unstoppable word of God. He says, Peter went here and there among them all, even traveling down to Lydda over to Joppa. This is where he receives that rooftop vision, witnesses God. Uh, breaking down that final barrier, maybe the most difficult barrier, humanly speaking, by declaring not only all foods clean, but much, much more significantly, it's at this moment he declares all peoples clean. All people groups. Not only does he declare them clean, he actually indwells them with his very own spirit. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come down with Peter were amazed Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life, eternal life. And remember, this scattering and this sowing all came as a result of the persecution of Stephen, of one man. As one preacher said, oh, to live in such a way that your death bears more fruit than your life. Much fruit was born in the days directly following the persecution of Stephen. It's still being born in our section this morning and even today. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled not just to Judea, not just to Samaria, but now as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus. Antioch, very important to remember. Uh, 
Uh, persecution scattered the body. Persecution scattered the believers. Persecution scattered the message the Sanhedrin tried so desperately to extinguish. Persecution spreads the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Persecution was the primary means and mode by which God called the people who were far off as he built his church, just like he said he would. Those who were scattered by this persecution went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Let me show you here on this map. Here is Phoenicia. This is my MS paint, the best I could do with the yellow. Show me a little grace here. Here's Jerusalem. This is the Roman Empire. It actually goes clear over here and up here as well, but for our screen here. Here's Jerusalem right here. Caesarea. Here's Phoenicia up the Mediterranean coast. This is Alexandria and Rome. Now, Rome was the most heavily populated uh, area in the city in the Roman Empire, followed by Alexandria. Then Antioch, okay? And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Antioch had about 500,000 people. It was a big city. It was a big city. Well, it was a big city. It had a lot of people in it. It was really the epicenter of immorality in the first century. Okay, this was a very dark, dark place, spiritually speaking, very dark. Antioch was like New York City and Las Vegas on a three-day bender. It was, it was filthy. It was corrupt. It was filled with nefarious men and women who were on this never-ending quest to satiate the wicked desires of their depraved hearts. They even had a garden. It was called the Pleasure Garden of Daphne. This was a nod to the mythologi- mythological account of Apollo's sexual pursuit of the nymph Daphne, or beauty. Uh, this Pleasure Garden, it, it said, was approximately five miles from the city, and it was ten miles in circumference, this garden. Quote, With its sanctuary of Apollo, its groves of laurel and cypress trees, its sparkling fountains, its colonnades and halls and baths, it was in this place that Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne there was reenacted day and night and day and night from the men of the city and by the priestesses who were in fact ritual prostitutes. So Antioch was this place of rampant idolatry, Rampant cult prostitution, rampant gross perversion. One writer said, even the ancients thought Antioch was corrupt. That's really saying something. It was notorious as a location for licentious sexual indulgence. It was like an outdoor brothel. People went there specifically to indulge their sensual appetites. Antioch was so well known for its debauchery that when a famous Roman senator was trying to describe how Rome had become corrupted by the moral degeneracy of the East, he said this in picturesque language, the sewage of the Orontes River has flowed into the Tiber, which means that the conduct uh, of Antioch, which was more than 1,300 miles away from Rome, was so degrading so repulsive, it was having a detrimental impact on Rome herself. They're saying that place is corrupt. Rome was saying that. This was a dark, dark place. It was overrun by people, with, with people with dark, dark hearts. 
the perfect place for the light of the gospel to shine its brightest. And so it did. Look again at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Why were they only speaking to Jews? I thought, I mean, what just happened with Cornelius? Well, we have to remember at this point, many of the folks scattered from Jerusalem hadn't heard about the word going up to Caesarea. They didn't have the internet in those days. They didn't have the Twitter. They didn't have Middle Eastern Union or anything like that. All all they had was word of mouth. And years had gone by since the stoning of Stephen. Years of scattering. Years of persecution. And, and many of these scattered believers still had it in their mind that Christianity was just another sect of Judaism. Many folks were still preaching that a person had to become a Jew before they became a Christian. They still had to go uh, through the law of Moses to come to Christ. They still had to be circumcised. They still had to be purified. Then and only then could a person come to Christ and be a Christian. They... The, the Jewish believers were scattered. They went up the, again, the coast through Phoenicia, the Mediterranean coast. Do, do we have that map again? I'm sorry. That's okay. Don't worry about it. All the way up through that uh, Mediterranean coast there. Then they went over to the island of Cyprus, back to Antioch. All the while, they're searching out Jews, and they're telling Jews only about the good news of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, Look with me at the first word in verse 20. What's that word there? But. Oh, what a beautiful word in the scriptures. But. And this is one of the most beautiful buts in all the Bible. For it tells us of this great light that's about to shine in this great darkness. Now. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews only. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also, Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. But some men, some Anonymous, nameless, titleless, regular old, non-spotlight-seeking, non-glory-seeking men, men who Luke doesn't even name. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came into this dark and depraved city, and they preached the Lord Jesus, not to Jews, not to Hellenistic Jews, not to Samaritans, not to Jewish proselytes, not to God-fearing Gentiles, but to the Greeks to the full-blown pagan Gentiles, the idol-worshiping, false god-worshiping, emperor-worshiping, perhaps even no god-worshiping, morally and spiritually bankrupt, corrupt, filthy pagan men and women from Antioch in Syria. Just ordinary men who had an extraordinary impact on the history of the world. You're a Gentile sitting here this morning? These men had an impact on your life. And they were just ordinary men. Reminds me of what Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look what Luke says in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord, meaning salvation had come to the ends of the earth, not just individual representatives from the ends of the earth, not just representatives of the nations that just happen to be in close proximity to Jerusalem, but it's at this moment right here in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, uh, which marks the actual fulfillment of the geographical spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And it all started right here in the, the darkest of dark places in the known world at that point in time. The pagans had been granted repentance unto life. The pagans had received the gift of the Holy Spirit just as he gave to us when we believed in the beginning. The hand of the Lord, meaning the power of the Lord, the very Holy Spirit of the Lord was with them. The Lord was with them. I can't express in mere human terms how significant this is. How significant these verses 20 and 21 are this morning. I, I mean, I thought about it, I thought about it, I, could, I just couldn't, I couldn't find the words. So I'm going to let Luke do it for us as he goes on in this very letter in chapter 17 to tell us of Paul and Silas preaching at a synagogue in Thessalonica. He says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, this Jesus. These men who have turned the world upside down. They turn the world upside down. That's the best way to describe verses 20 and 21. The beginning of the sovereign Lord's turning of the ancient world completely upside down. The gospel of Christ changed everything. Everything. And it's the same gospel that we preach today. These men who have turned the world upside down, these regular old ordinary but spirit-filled men who are led uh, to preach the Lord Jesus to anyone who would hear it, Jew or Greek. Notice they didn't preach the Christ. Most Greeks wouldn't know anything about the Jewish Messiah. No, they preached the Lord Jesus. He is sovereign. He is master of all. He is ruler of them all, whether they believe it or not. He is Lord of all. And Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. 
It was with them. Notice also in verse 21, when they heard this preaching, they, they believed it. They, they turned to the Lord. They believed and they turned. Okay, belief speaks of faith and turning speaks of repentance, a change of not only mind, not only an intellectual assent to a certain set of facts, but a transformation of the entire being. Uh, Spirit-enabled faith, God-granted repentance. Paul would later go on to write to that, ch- that, that church in Thessalonica, that city where they wanted to kill him, basically, that mob. He would go on to write to the church that was planted there, praise the Lord. This, uh, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith, in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us this kind of, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You believed You had faith in the word. You had faith in the preaching. You turned from your idols. You turned to the living God. Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. The power of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Well, look what happens next in verse 22. As always, news of this power got back home. Luke says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, This is incredible to me. Notice that the hand of the Lord was with them prior to the guys back in Jerusalem having any idea at all what was going on up there. In chapter 8, Peter and John had to come down to verify that the Samaritans had truly believed. You remember that? They came down from Jerusalem and laid their hands on these people and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, nobody had to come down to Antioch. Okay, none of the apostles had to come down from Ant- uh, to Antioch for the Spirit to come because he was already there. He already had come. He-, he was already with them, Luke says. They did, however, send a representative, uh, an investigative delegate of sorts, and who better than Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He was uh, from Cyprus himself. He was a Levite, but a Hellenistic Jew by birth. He said, they said, let's send him up there, see what's going on. So they send up Barnabas. And I want you to look at what Luke says in verse 23. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Barnabas came up and he was glad. How different would this whole thing be, the rest of the book, the, rest of the whole rest of the New Testament, the whole rest of world history and the lives of each and every Gentile man or woman from that point on if Luke would have said, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was indignant. He was angry. He was furious. These knuckleheads from Cyprus were preaching the Lord Jesus to these vile and hopeless God-haters. What if it said this? The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God... He was highly offended at the thought of the good news of the Jewish Messiah coming to those who had absolutely no affinity toward the things of the one true God. 
I mean, the Samaritans were one thing. They at least worshiped God to some extent. And the, the eunuch and the Cornelius, they were both God-fearing men themselves. But these pagans from Antioch, these full-blown blown Greeks, these sexual deviants, psh, forget it. I'm a proud Jew. I'm a proud Levite. I have no time for this. I'm shaking the dust off my feet. I'm heading back to Jerusalem. Wait till they hear this travesty. What if he said that? But is that what happened? No. Not with the son of encouragement. Not with, not with Barnabas. Praise the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was glad. His heart was full of gladness. He rejoiced at the gospel going forth because he knew deep in his heart that the Lord was worthy of their worship as well as his. And he knew that the, the hand of the Lord, the power of the Lord was, was in this place. So he encouraged them, he exhorted them, he spurred them on to remain faithful, to remain true, to cleave unto the Lord is the best translation. They were already in the Lord. They, they, they had believed, they trusted, they had placed their faith in the Lord Jesus and his gospel, just as Cornelius and his whole family, his whole household had done, even before they had an opportunity to become Jews. They believed. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. He regenerated them. He saved them. By the time Barnabas arrives, he could only encourage them to remain firm in their commitment to the Lord, to their master. Barnabas was just the right man at just the right time. Sent by the church to investigate. Sent by the Spirit to stimulate, to strengthen these new believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was just the right man. For Luke says he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith himself. That's how he's able to be called good in verse 24, by the way. Luke says Barnabas was a good man. Remember in Luke chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes up and asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Wanting the man to say, well, you are God. So how now can Luke call Barnabas good? Well, who dwells on the inside of him? God. The Holy Spirit of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit of God. So he's a good man. Let me just ask you here, is this true of you today? Are you full of the Holy Spirit of God? Have you been indwelled with the very Spirit of God himself and sealed for eternal life with your Creator in the new heavens and the new earth by grace alone, through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Have you believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from the idols of this world, from the vain promises of this fleeting world system which can never satisfy? Have you believed in the word? Have you turned from your sin? Have you... Turn to the Lord by faith alone. Have you believed in the same gospel that went to Antioch, to this dark, dark city? Have you believed? Have you believed in this gospel that said the Lord Jesus came into this world to save sinners just like these people, just like you? 
just like me. Have you believed in this gospel which says the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives? Have you believed? Have you believed in the virgin birth, the perfect life, the penal, substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary? Have you believed in his triumphant resurrection from the dead by which he assures his children that we too can be raised to life, life, eternal life? Have you believed? Have you believed this gospel? Do you have his very spirit dwelling on the inside of you? You you can believe today. Don't leave this place without being sure that you believe. You, You can be indwelled today. You can be permanently sealed today with his spirit, forgiven, justified, made to be righteous in the sight of a holy God as if you lived a perfect life yourself. You can be made to be righteous, just like the men and women described here in Acts chapter 11. You can be born again of the Spirit today if you would but believe. You know, Jesus even said, if, if even we, evil and sinful man, talking about the disciples at that point, if, if you who are sinful, evil men know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? I invite you this morning to come to the Father through Jesus the Son. He said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, he says. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The only way we can do what is true is through God's pouring out his Holy Spirit into our hearts, enabling us to walk in such a manner that is worthy of our calling and honoring to our Creator. And that's exactly what happened here in Antioch. Verse 24, A great many people were added to the Lord. Okay? A great many people were added to the Lord. The good shepherd was calling his sheep into his sheepfold. Peter would go on to call believers a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A great many people in Antioch were added to the Lord. This is beautiful, amen? As one commentator said, these people were added to the Lord Jesus before they were added to the church. If that were always true, what a difference that would make in our churches today. I pray that you hearing my voice now are among those who have been added to the Lord Jesus. Look with me now at verse 25, and I want you to notice another remarkable trait of this man, Barnabas. 
We've seen Barnabas in Acts before. We saw him uh, selling his possessions for the benefit of others in Acts chapter 4. We saw him vouching for the conversion of Paul before the apostles. Here he's exhorting the people to remain steadfast to the Lord, to cleave unto the Lord. Now, here in another selfless act, Luke writes, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is years have gone by since Saul's conversion. He goes up, he searches up and down, it says. That's the literal meaning, all over, up and down. And Tarsus, looking for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church, taught a great many people. This is so atypical today, isn't it? I mean, uh, think of the current culture we live in, modern-day evangelicalism. Oh, how easy it would have been for Barnabas to say, listen here, all you new believers in Antioch, all you babes in Christ. I have come down from Jerusalem. I'm the guy who will lead you to the promised land. I will preach, I will teach, I will baptize, I will administrate, I will grow this church. I will be your senior pastor. I will be your head pastor, your Lead pastor, the man who sets the vision for this body. <laughs> I am the Honorable Dr. Reverend Joseph, but you can call me Pastor Barnabas. Just follow me, my little flock. You know what I'm saying? He could have easily come down there and pulled rank here at Antioch. He could have been the man at Antioch, but he's not the man. He doesn't want to be the man, does he? Why? Because he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Human praise and adulation, human titles and recognition means nothing when it's all said and done. It's so temporal. He's not focusing on being the guy. He's not focusing on being the man. Neither should any of us. None but God receives the glory. And he knows it. He knows this. So he says, listen, this church is in its infant stages. We need a strong plurality. We need to establish a strong theological foundation. We need to teach these believers what it means to be a Christ follower. And I'm certainly willing to do whatever I can, whatever it takes for this to happen. But I know a guy up in Tarsus who can help us. I know this guy up in Tarsus. He he was converted on, on the road to Damascus years ago. I mean, we're talking seven to ten years ago at this point. He was coming into Damascus from Jerusalem. He's coming in to persecute believers, and the Lord blinded him and, and saved him by his grace and enabled him to proclaim the gospel to, to those in Arabia, then back to Damascus, then back up to Jerusalem. Then the Hellenistic Jews tried to kill him there. And so the apostles sent him back to his hometown in Tarsus. He's been up there. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been suffering for the name of Christ. I'm going to go up there and get him. And, and you know what? He'll help us set this foundation. Then we'll train some guys up to take our place. And then we'll see where the Lord leads. That was the spirit of Barnabas. It's so not like what we do in America today. Let me pour into the lives of other spirit-enabled men. And, and uh, spirit-given women. And, and let me grow this church in, in, according to the biblical model, not my own opinions or my own vision. God help us if we follow the vision of some guy. No, he says, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to get Paul. 
It comes back. These two men, they lay a foundation for the whole year. They're teaching the people, teaching a great many people. Luke says, discipling many people, likely making disciples themselves. You know, you want to know how to build a church? It's not through programs and potlucks. Although the food here is very good. I like it. Susie, I'm looking at you. It's very good. But it's not what builds a church. You know how you want to know how to build a biblical church? You teach the Bible. Systematically. And I'm not just talking about here on Sunday mornings. I mean, this is essential to be sure, but I'm talking Monday through Saturday. I'm talking about the, the young children learning the scriptures in the classrooms over there, and more importantly, in their home by their mom and dad. I'm talking about older women discipling and mentoring younger women, older men speaking into the lives of younger men, teaching them the word, uh, the grace of the Lord through his word, counseling men and women from the word. Home group Bible studies. I hear of uh, the studies at the Rasks and um, what they're doing up north and that that group up there and and here uh, with Brian. We're speaking into the lives of these eternal souls of men and women with the word, which is the authority, not just some guy's take on the thing. We're saying, here's the, the scriptures. We're encouraging and exhorting one another to remain faithful to the Lord, which is done how? By knowing the Lord. And how do we know the Lord? By going directly to the means by which he has revealed himself to us. Not... Yeah. I'm not going to get into that. Sorry. The, the essentials for real church growth, not numerically speaking, but infinitely more important, spiritually speaking, are right here in Acts chapter 11. First of all, the hand of the Lord must be with us. Without the power of the Lord, we're just a social club here. And then second, the word of the Lord. If there ever comes a time where either of these things depart from Lakewood Bible Chapel, you ought to go somewhere else because it'll just be a bunch of folks sitting around playing church. Now, I believe that the hand of the Lord is with our local body here. I really do. I believe there's a reverence for the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe that, and I believe we speak into the lives of one another with the Word, and we praise the Lord for that. We have to. It's our foundation. And, and the foundation of the church at Antioch was the power of God and the Word of God. That was the foundation. And the men and women of this church, they were disciples. They were learners of God. And that's what Luke says at the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The believers were disciples. Notice they were disciples before they were called Christians. When you are saved by grace alone, the moment you truly believe in this gospel, you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I got in real trouble in a church down in Tennessee a few years ago because some pastor down there, some guy down there was saying that there were levels of Christianity. There were Christians who were mere believers, those who had made an intellectual assent to a theological set of facts of Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, a belief which he considered to be sufficient for eternal salvation, even if they winded up wandering from the faith some point down the road. And then there was another class of Christian, the disciple. 
One who devoted themselves to Christ and his teaching, a sort of sanctified type. We always do this. We always do this as humans. A sort of sanctified Christian. And I said, wow, that's quite the imagination you have there. But, but neither Christ nor the apostles taught anything about classes of believers. They were disciples before they were Christians, right? Everyone who truly believes is a disciple in complete submission and under complete subjection to the lordship of their master. He is master. We are his slaves, and it's a joy to be the slave of Christ. Luke says, in Antioch, the disciples, he's not talking about Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew there. He's talking about every single man, woman, or child who truly believed. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians. Now, who do you think gave them that name? Uh, Christ uh, Christ means anointed or chosen one. The, The Hebrew word Mashiach. Is Annie in here, Salinger? Okay, good. She speaks Hebrew, so whenever I say a Hebrew word, I have to make sure that that was right. <laughs> I think she's teaching the, the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. The term Christian essentially means Christ men, okay? Messiah men. Well, I'll tell you this. The pious Jews of Judaism didn't give them that name. The... the, the Jews didn't give them the name Messiah, man. They didn't believe that the Messiah had come yet. They still don't believe that Messiah has come. No, the pagans gave them the name Christians. It may have even been a derogatory term at the start, but nobody knows that for sure. Remember in Acts chapter 26, when uh, Paul was standing before King Agrippa, Agrippa says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? A Christ man? Come on, Paul. Now, now, Christian, it meant a lot more in those days than it does today. Today, the, uh, back then people used to be killed for the name of Christ. They used to be tortured for the name of Christ. Now it's just a blanket term that covers a multitude of religious beliefs and lifestyles. Whole false religious systems identify themselves as Christian. Demonic televangelists call themselves Christian. Sleazy politicians call themselves Christian, depending on who they're campaigning to at the moment. But it just doesn't have the same weight as it once did, does it? I remember back in the 90s when I was a kid, I would watch that show Cops. You guys remember that show Cops? It seemed like everyone who got arrested, no matter the charge, would say the same thing. I'm a good Christian woman. Well, I'm a Christian, sir. I'd never hit my wife. And there she is in the corner, blood going down her face. Well, I know I'm a drunk, and I, I, I'm high, and I robbed that store, but sir, I'm a, I'm a good Christian man. Everyone in, in America was a Christian back then, right? At some point. That's very interesting. Because those people tried to get out of suffering, persecution, imprisonment, for the, using the name of Christ. But Christians throughout history have always bore the name of Christ, and endured persecution, affliction, and torture. I wonder if the Christians of America could hang with the same Christians throughout church history. That's what I want to know. Eusebius, uh, the famous church historian, described a believer named Sanctus from Lyons, France, who was tortured for Jesus. Okay? 
As they tortured him cruelly, they hoped, hoped to get him to say something evil or blasphemous. They asked his name, and he only replied, I am a Christian. What nation do you belong to? He answered, I am a Christian. What city do you live in? I'm a Christian. His, his questioners began to get angry. Are you a slave or are you a free man? I'm a Christian, was his only reply. No matter what they asked him, he only answered, I am a Christian. This made his torturers all the more determined to break him, but they could not, and he died with the words, I am a Christian, on his lips. I'm a Christian. Well, it's in Antioch that these disciples were first called Christians. And that's what Peter would call them as well in his first epistle. Listen to this. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Are you a Christ man here this morning? Are you a Christ woman this morning? Are you ashamed to take the name of Christ because of what it might cost you? Are you going to be a Christ man or a Christ woman to the end? More on that next week as we dive into Acts chapter 12. But as we close this morning, I want you to look at the last section of this chapter with me. This is really something here. In these verses, we see, the Holy, we see Holy Spirit-powered faith in action. Okay, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, of course, they had men and women who spoke for God and gave new revelation. They didn't have the completed New Testament at, at that time. They had prophets. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world, which Luke confirms this actually took place in the days of Claudius, 45 AD. Josephus, uh, the, the secular historians, they say the same thing. Yeah, there's a great famine all over the known world. So, Luke says, the disciples determined, these converted men and women of Antioch determined everyone, every single one, according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders, plural, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now think about what you just read there. Think about this for one minute. The, these pagan men and women, these men and women who just a year earlier would have been considered unclean, Gentiles, dogs to the Jews. The Jews call them dogs. These Holy Spirit indwelled men and women now took up a collection to support the struggling body of Jewish believers in Judea. Do you believe that? Right here in this chapter, right here in Acts chapter 11, we see the world being turned upside down. Now the dogs are supporting the Jews. James Boyce said, as far as I know, this is the first charitable act of this nature in all recorded history, one race of people collecting money to help another people. No wonder they were first called Christians at Antioch. They were Christ men, Christ women. 
Note this here, Lakewood Bible Chapel, in verse 22, the Holy Spirit has the Jerusalem believers send Barnabas to the Gentiles for spiritual aid. And here in verse 30, he has the Gentiles send Barnabas right back to bring financial aid. First he goes up, encourages the brothers in Antioch, brothers and sisters in Antioch, spiritual aid. They grow in the Lord, send him right back down to Jerusalem, financial aid when they needed it most. So apparently these men and women had been strengthened to the point they didn't need Barnabas and Paul around at this time. They had the power of the Lord. They had the word of the Lord, the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as their foundation. This is the church. This is the church at Antioch, and it won't be the last time we hear about them. In fact, we'll hear hear much more about them in the coming chapters, these Christians But here we see the grace of our Lord on full display this morning. What an example. What a model for us. What a testimony for us here this morning. What a remarkable section of Scripture. Amen? Amen. Let's give thanks to the Lord now, and we'll close our time with uh, musical worship.